0: Good morning. Welcome to chapel. <laughs> well, can we open in prayer as we as we begin together? Um, let's just center our hearts and still our minds and um, be present with one another during this time. Lord, we gather together this morning, um, Lord, to worship you, to be with you, to be in your presence. Um, to be received by you. And um, God, we just thank you for this time to be able to gather together. Lord, we just pray for um, strength of hearts and minds for all the students that are gathered here today in the midst of a crazy busy time in the semester, Lord, as um, as deadlines are coming up and assignments are due and stresses are high. Lord, we just ask that you would still our hearts and minds this morning. Um, Lord, that we would be able to take just a mental break from all um, that is swirling around in our, in our thoughts and in our emotions, God, that we would be able to just be present here with one another and with you. And God, we thank you for being a God who um, welcomes us with open arms, and we are here to um, just receive more of you this morning, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to chapel. I just have one quick announcement before we um, open with, with worship. Um, this, today and tomorrow is also the academic symposium, um, so you all should have received an email about that, um, but please participate um, with one another and celebrate with one another all the hard work that has been done, but um, let's gather together and worship this morning.
1: Today begins the uh, first lecture of the Gould Holiness Lecture Series. We've been holding the Gould Holiness Lecture Series here at Eastern Nazarene College since 1945. Uh, so this would be the 60th, uh, the 60th meeting of this. And uh, this is a tradition that brings some of the most renowned scholars in the Church of the Nazarene and scholars that look closely at Wesleyan holiness theology and brings them here to engage uh, you, students, faculty, and uh, Overall community here engages our thought. Now I have a question for you, and I'm sure there I have a good idea of the response here. How many of you, by show of hands, have taken a class with Dr. Philip LaFountain? Quite a few of you. Quite a few of you. Uh, today's lecture series uh, speaker for the week, actually, is Dr. Philip LaFountain. Now, I would normally say things like, our lecturer for this series is not a stranger to us, but the fact is he's been on sabbatical this semester, so we haven't really been in contact with him, and he's done a great job of not being in contact with us. It's been been exactly what sabbatical is supposed to be. But here's the other thing. Uh, you know, I encountered him this morning, and my long quest since I was a child was finally over. I've always wondered, where's Waldo? And uh, this morning, when he gets up to speak, you will see that we have all found him. OK uh, Dr. Phillip Fountain has let go of his braided beard and traded it in for those cool, really thick glasses that all of you wear. Uh, he ran into the bow tie section of T.J. Maxx, probably, <laughs> or Marshall's. They're all the same, who knows. And, uh, you know, just a very different look, and uh, we'll probably hear a bit about that. But uh, let me read to you some serious things about uh, Dr. Philip LaFountain. Dr. LaFountain's research interest is focused on the relationship between theology and the sociology of knowledge, while exploring the possibility for dialogue between Christian theology and the disciplines of sociology and social psychology. He completed his degree at Boston University, his doctoral degree at Boston University in 2010 in theology, culture, and personality, and wrote his dissertation on the topic of religious identity entitled Narratives of Holiness Identity, the Sanctified Person in the Church of the Nazarene. Dr. LaFountain's concern to serve the church has found expression over the years in many forms of Christian ministry. Senior pastor... Ministerial education and training regarding inner city ministry, hospital, prison, and corporate chaplain, and personal involvement in the ongoing life of the local congreg- congregation serving in Sunday school education and as a church board member. Dr. LaFountain received his Bachelor of Arts here at ENC, his Master of Divinity from NTS, and once again his doctorate from Boston University. Uh, it is my honor to uh, welcome my colleague and friend, Dr. Philip LaFountain.
2: So, where's Waldo? He's at <laughs> ENC! Definitely. Well, it is so good to be back, and I have protected that sabbatical. Sabbaticals are very good things, and I am grateful to Eastern Nazarene College for having an opportunity, four months, just to devote uh, uninterruptedly to research and writing, and I'm grateful for that, uh, that time. Certainly, have missed you, folks. Uh, classes with you and students, and my colleagues and, and faculty at Eastern Nazarene College. But sabbaticals are good things to devote to research. And uh, just last week, or week and a half ago, I heard from Asgate Publishing. The first reviewer, they send uh, a book proposal out to two reviewers, blind review. And the first reviewer came back with just very high marks, high accolades. Uh, indicating that this book has to be written. So that's great. I'm looking forward to hearing from the next reviewer, maybe in the week or so. They take their own time. They do their own thing. Uh, but the book I've been working on is called Changing Identity, Secularization, Sex, S-E-C-T-S, and the New Paradigm in the Sociology of Religion. I shared that title with my wife last year, about writing a book on secularization, sex, and the new paradigm, and she got all indignant. Well, how do you know about that, right, you know? S-E-X, right, you know? So, anyways, we'll let that one go, right, you know? So she was all quite out, put out until I said, "Hun, it's S-E-C-T-S on that, okay? Uh, let me also thank Eastern Nazarene College for hosting the Gould Lectures, and many thanks to my colleagues, uh, Dr. Bill Malice in particular and Professor Montague Williams for extending to me the invitation to be this year's Gould speaker. I have always secretly longed to be a Gould lecturer, so this is great. It's a dream come true. Over the past few years, it has been my responsibility uh, to shepherd the Gould Lectures, and we've invited a number of very prominent speakers and uh, who are doing significant work in the Wesley Holiness tradition, and especially in the Nazarene version of that tradition, of the Nazarene brand of that, or whatever you want to use. I have longed to write a history of the Gould Lectures, and I'm on that path right now. And now I'm gratified to be a part of that history. So what we do together over the next three days, we'll kind of bookend that book. You know, the preface, introduction, we'll talk about the social and cultural context of theology. And then at the end, the conclusion will be sort of wrapping up, where have we come since 1945? or rather 1908, really, but the Gould Lecture only covers 1945 until today, right? So uh, hopefully we'll be able to contextualize that and talk about those over the next couple of days. The list of speakers in that lecture series reads like a who's who among biblical and theological constructions, uh, scholars in the denomination, and those Lecturers have focused on biblical interpretation, necessary so. you got to read the B-I-B-L-E. Yeah, that's the book for me, right? You know, that's the ultimate source of our theology. Of course, it's a bit more complex than that, right? And then, of course, theological constructions. And we're still in that. We're still thinking theologically about what it means to be holy. Uh, Some questions out there about that. And maybe you have some questions like that in your own mind, in your own heart. So those biblical and theological constructions are really important and critical, and they track. They track with the changing social circumstances of the Church of the Nazarene since its inception in 1908. And while I am interested in biblical interpretation, yes, I do some of that myself once in a while, sporadically, and my primary expertise is in Christian theology, in thinking about circumstances in the history of theology. But what's happening recently in theology, all theology, is this sense of awareness of our cultural context and social circumstances in which theology is constructed and which our own church life or ecclesial life is lived. Much of the contemporary academic discussion of holiness focuses on deconstruction, deconstructing biblical text, investigating the role of authority and power and forming institutions like this or whatever other social institution you're thinking about and all those kinds of questions. And they're important questions. Deconstructive kinds of questions are critical. But sooner or later, one has to get to the task of constructing something. Right? We've got to live together in some way. So we cannot avoid construction. And that's the kind of idea I want to get at. Today and tomorrow at the academic symposium. And then, of course, on Friday for our final lecture uh, as we close things out. And uh, it's my conviction that we are at a point... In the Church of the Nazarene and Wesleyan Studies, uh, and in our culture, where some kind of construction is necessary, and the lectures today, tomorrow, and Friday will hopefully contextualize that. I'm not going to do much Bible interpretation. I'm not going to show you any theological construction, but I want to talk about what happens. What's that process? What are the social conditions that shape that? We'll talk about that today. So theology, finally, is reflecting on the impact of the social. While theological method has considered the sources of theology, like scripture and reason and tradition and experience, there's really only one source for theology, for Wesley and others and for me, but the other aspects of that are important. But none of those four get at the social context. Well, what are we doing? Right? What shapes it? So we need something else to supplement the quadrilateral. And I think it's necessary to think about those kinds of things. So what are we doing when we imagine religious identity and the social processes by which identities are formed? Much of my own work focuses on engaging theology and social psychology. So with that in mind, what we'll do over the next few days is this. Today, we're going to talk about holiness and the modern self. Modern, some people suggest, well, you know, Phil, we're kind of in the postmodern age, aren't you with it? We are moving there, but we're not there yet, right? We're still very modern. I consider that we're in the late modern stage, and there's no guarantee we could have a modernist reaction that pushes us back to modernity, right? Or we can continue the postmodern critique of meta narratives and rationality and that sort of thing. So I'm no future, you know, fortune teller. I'm not going to prognosticate, but it does seem that modernity is still with us in a real way. So I want to talk about that today. What are the social problems that we face in forming a durable and pervasive and consistent self identity? That's important for us because I believe that religious identities, you can use the word spiritual if you like, I think it's kind of squishy, uh, but religious identity, what does it mean to be a Christian, is is involved in this idea of self-identity. So what are today, what are the challenges, the social conditions of modernity that are often invoked? Right? People call upon these as reasons why stable and pervasive self-identities are problematic today. We'll focus on that. And I found, I spoke in Maine a couple of years ago at the family camp up there. And I happened to be driving around and I found this wonderful place where you can go and find a new identity. You know, I didn't realize this is perfect because I was talking about identity at this family camp. I said, this is fantastic. So I can get a new identity by just getting my nails done and my hair done. Wow, I feel like a per- new person now, right? So part of my persona, part of what I'm projecting, right, is a self-identity, right? This is, I'm kind of playing with that. I'm kind of teasing out, what are the limits of self-identity? Would you stand up for me, please? All right. now, if I pick on you, you're going to be embarrassed for a few moments, okay? Uh, miss, would you stand up right there for me, please, you know? Yeah, would you stand up right there? Yeah, this is great. Look at this. Look at this identity right here. Wow, you know. Oh, would you stand up right there? Would you stand up right there, you know? Let's see. Who else can we pick on? Yeah, uh, Who else, yeah. Woo-hoo! <clears throat> All right. Um, and Miss, would you stand up please right here? Yeah, see, you knew I was going to pick on you, right? She said, please, no, not me. Please, no, not me. Now, there are a bunch of, there's this kind of interesting species called Homo administratus, right, you know? And here we have an example right here, you know. Nice. But look at this. This is, an, this is an identity, right? He's wearing his costume today, isn't he? He's right. projecting himself, right? He is. I'm serious about this. It's, it's funny, but, he's, you know, it's, it's serious. He's projecting an identity out to us, the one that he wants us to see, right? You know, this public, right? Thank you, you Mason. Right. right. Look at this. Look at this guy. This is wonderful, right? A wonderful identity, unique and special, you know. Interesting. Uh, Miss, you've got a wonderful, colorful uh, shirt on there. You know, it's fantastic, you know. And look at it. Look how he's wearing his hat backwards. He think, he's so cool, man. I'll tell you, it is fantastic, right? But this is a moral self right here, right? He is, he's projecting himself outwardly and he's speaking volumes to us, right? Now, I could have picked on any one of you. How many of you have a Christian tattoo? How many of you have a Christian tattoo? Yeah, right. You're, you're, you're marked for Jesus, right, you know? Good for you, good for you, all right, you know? Thank you, thank so, Sure, we do that, right? We, <laughs> we, we mark ourselves. We project ourselves outward, right? And we could go on some pretty unique kinds of things. And um, homo provostus, right, you know? Is that our, our, our provost, right, you know? I, he, actually... I waved at you today. I had my red Miata. You were coming across the street. You looked right at me, right, you know. And I was in the car. I waved to you. Oh, oh, hi, provost, right, you know. And like, you're like you like, you looked at me. You turned away like this, you know. I don't understand it. I am offended, right, you know. How could you not recognize me? But do I look different? Yeah. Right, and this kind of intentional. I'm kind of wondering what would I look like. if I changed my hair, new glasses. You know, I got Spencer Shaw glasses on now. You know, and you know, and I'm I building it. Right, you know, I you know uh, uh, Waldo's tie. You know, TJ Maxx. Yes, right, you know. Uh, very good. Good call. Good call. So, but so this is kind of like it's kind of like intentional, kind of curious invention. Kind of pushing the limits, right? You know, we all do this. This might be a little extreme, maybe, for me. You've seen my beard in other ways. But we all do it. Sociologists historians suggest that there are some cultural challenges to forming a durable and stable self-identity. And if that's true, folks, then there are some challenges to forming a religious identity, too. Because religious identities are in some way shaped and formed or a part of self-identity. So what do we mean by self-identity? Next, how are self-identities formed? Keep going. Oh, I can look over here. <laughs> Actually, I can't read that. <laughs> so what is the peculiar problem? What are the problems that uh, facing the formation of stable uh, and durable and persistent selves? What's the relationship between the self and society? Because we form ourselves in conversation with others, right? Every social circumstance. Under what social conditions could this identity be created, right? That's a great question. And I would ask the same question regarding your identity. Under what social circumstances, conditions, could your identity be created, what does community, how does community then both hinder and promote self identity formation next slide look at this an aboriginal tribesman curious identity right i've not seen many around have you no. <laughs> not in our, not many in our culture anyways right you know so i would ask you this question under what social conditions is that self identity possible There are cultures, social circumstances in which that's the norm, right? But if we saw a person walking out in the street looking like this, it would be strange, right? Odd, out of the ordinary. And yet at one place, that was a taken for granted uh, self-identity right there. Next. Ancient Egyptian man. There were millions of them. They lived at one time. This is the second millennium, right? About 1800 or so. Give or take BCE, before uh, the Common Era. Under what social conditions is that possible? In order to form and shape that kind of identity, our whole social structure would have to be different, right? Interesting. Next, Gandhi, right? Under what social circumstances would that identity be possible? Have you seen the movie uh, Gandhi with Ben Kingsley? Powerful, right? And the transformation that occurred in Gandhi from a Western lawyer intellectual, right, to that. A powerful religious figure who brings change to India. Powerful. But under what circumstances could that happen? North American Indian, right? Under what circumstances could that identity be possible? Uh, next. Ah, Yes. The motorcycle gang member. I love those glasses, by the way. I gotta get me a pair of those glasses, right? But notice the one on the bottom, right? You know? I sent I that picture to a friend of mine, and he looks at it, he texts me back, he says, That guy's killed somebody. I go, Wow, yeah, you know? But under what social circumstances is that identity possible? How is it possible? Of course, the one up front, I know. I know a number of gang members, right, who look like this. It's an identity. It's a self-identity that they project, and it's a moral identity. It, what I mean by that, it has meaning for them, right? We all do it all the time. Next. Oh, have you read about Barbie Woman? This is crazy stuff. I saw this on Facebook, right, you know? I said, i got to get that from my lecture. This is a woman who's undergone all kinds of you know, physical transformations, right? Eyes, eye implant things, you know, change your eye color, uh, uh, plastic surgery. She not only looks like Barbie, in her mind, she is Barbie, right? Now, she's a, a community of one, but what if other people in our culture said, oh, I want to be Barbie woman, or I want to be... Who's the counterpart of Barbie? Ken, oh yeah, Ken, right, you know? So what if I want to be a Ken, you know, make myself like Ken? Then we can have a whole community of Barbie Ken people, right, you know, where they shape. It's not out of the question, right? It's not so strange, right? It depends on changing social circumstances. Now, Barbie woman is a community of one. She, that's a Herculean task to maintain her identity, To keep that going, keep it fresh in her consciousness, to keep her identity going. And so her physical change has contributed to the consciousness that she's built up in her head, her self-identity, and she's projecting it. Now, over time, without reinforcement, that identity will fall apart. It will dissolve. We all need social support for identities. And culture and society offers that support. Right? Next. What about this guy, Catman? Look at this tattoo. The teeth are implants. Um, he's had his face shaped. Uh, the, he's had um, nails implanted. I think those implanted. And then the one in on the bottom there. Actually, I don't. I forget the sequence here. But the bottom, those whiskers are implanted in his face. So in his mind, he is Catman. He's not like Catman. He is Catman, right? That's his self-identity, and that's what shapes him. And you might say, well, that's kind of strange, right, you know? You're doing exactly the same thing, folks. You are projecting and creating an identity that's formed in our social context. And apparently, our social circumstances, our culture, society, allows identities like these in these room to to be shaped and formed, right? That's a pretty interesting question. You think about that for a while... And that will take you very deep, right? So I've been exploring myself. Who's Phil the Fountain, right? What does it mean to be fill the Fountain? Well, we're gonna think more about the social challenges to self-identity today. But tomorrow at the symposium, I want to talk about a theory of religious identity. What is religious identity? And in doing so, I have to talk about self-identity. So tomorrow's lecture, 10:30. The auditorium, Uh, we will talk about self identities and how they're formed and how religious identities are a part of that to give us some theory, right? People think they know what religion is, what identity is, you know, they'll know when you see it, but we need more understanding of that. So we'll get there, and then Friday, we'll talk about theology and social identity. And uh, social circumstances, okay? So Barbie woman, cat man, on my shelves, shelves at my house, my home office, I have dozens and dozens and dozens of books on the self. We seem to be fixated on that question in America, in the West, right? Everybody's writing some understanding of identity. Because it's a problem for us. In, under conditions of modernity, the self is problematic. So I want to talk about those challenges. So, uh, can we get to that? There's that section there. Oh, oh, there, thank you very much, yeah. So, uh, first is Charles Taylor. Maybe some of you use this in your classes, professors, or others in uh, students taking classes with professors. Uh, sources of the self, right? We're so enamored with that question that we're trying to figure out, well, what are the cultural, social forces that shape and form us? So, Charles Taylor, right? He talks about the self in the moral space. That every place we go, Starbucks, right? Dunkin' Donuts, right? T.J. Maxx, right, you know? Eastern Eastern College, These are all moral spaces in which selves are shaped and formed and created, right? There is no neutral space, folks. There is no place you can go where there is no story or narrative or cultural pressure to be something, right? There isn't any. There's no such place, right? So he talks about that next. Uh, Kenneth Juergen calls this the saturated. He says we're ourselves are saturated, right? The saturated self, where we are so... The self is under siege in modernity that uh, we have so many relationships, we have so many tasks, so many responsibilities that we're, we're overcome with those kinds of things. And he talks about how to strategize. Well, how do you, deal, how do you live in that kind of environment? So every theorist of the self has an understanding of what's going on in our culture, right? He or she imagines the dynamics of our culture and then tries to talk about the self to offer us some therapy, right? These are kind of books that help us kind of make our way in the world, you know? And we'll talk about some of those things. Um, Next, the minimal self. I read this in Living Issues class with Don Yerxa when I was here at ENC. It made no sense to me back then, (laughs) right, you know? I gotta read this, come on, you know, right? Can't we just watch a movie? You know, have you heard that before? No. Uh, so he talks about the narcissistic self, you know. The idea of looking, gazing into ourselves, you know, kind of dealing with our identity and worrying about it, wringing our hands over who I am, you know. Or how wonderful I look, right? Projecting yourself that, you know, uh, that we're wonderful. Well, that self-centeredness, that self-preoccupation, he saw as a very destructive kind of thing. So he describes this minimal self in American Western culture. He talks about the politics of the psyche and the inner history of of selfhood. Next, right? Here's one called the redemptive self. This is the idea that the self is connected with our American history, right? That uh, Americans tell stories about redemption from the evil pressures of Europe. And this is a new place, a new country, a a, a new kingdom right here. And our identities as Americans are wrapped up in that and how we live it out. Very curious book. Next. The Protean self. Proteus was a, a sea god who could change his uh, his, his image, uh, how he got projected, right? You know, his form. And this guy, Robert Lifton, suggests that we are like Proteus. That every new circumstance that comes along, we change ourselves to fit into that, right? And we're forced, we're, we're changed. Are we, li- are we really like that? Do we change our identities with each changing circumstance? So we produce a different kind of identity? Interesting question. Well worthy of research, the Protean self. The self is nothing but for flux and change. This is by Walter rugerman a great Old Testament scholar, who says that we should form ourselves under conditions of covenant right, and Torah. And so the covenant itself, a, a theological way, a biblical way of seeing and forming our identities, projecting our identity out as a constructed self shaped by covenant. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Next. And the self we live by, living under conditions of post-modernity, next. And the self after post-modernity. So we've got scholars who are trying to imagine what it's like after post-modernity. We're not even there yet. And scholars are trying to predict and to, uh, you know, to shape that. Well, the I have many other books on my shelves like this. Because it's a cultural preoccupation. And most of you, most of you... Uh, me, maybe, going through a lengthened midlife crisis, right, you know? Trying to figure out, who, who's filled the fountain? Oh, no, what am I going to be? You know, wringing oh, my hands. Oh, worried about that, right, you know? what am I? Who, I project. And there are reasons why we do this. I want to talk about that. So the self after postmodernity. So next slide. So here we go. What are those challenges then? The effects of modernity. What are the effects of modernity that make forming stable selves and ultimately stable religious selves difficult, problematic, uh, you know, uh, a, a conundrum? We're going to talk for a sort of few moments about rationalization. The process in our culture of rationalization. And can we go back to the other slide? I'm sorry. I want to talk about each, each of those three first. Yeah, thank you. And we're going to talk about cultural differentiation or social differentiation. And how those, too, lead to secularization and the demise of religion, right, you know? And finally, we'll talk about pluralism and relativism. Pluralism does not have to be related to uh, rationalization or differentiation, it can be its own kind of independent social issue or challenge, right? You know, But we'll talk about this. So next slide, then rationalization. Well, what is rationalization? Rationalization is the development of rational and calculated behavior, a means-ends oriented thinking as motivation for behavior in society in contrast to traditional, emotional, or religious authority, what scholars call charisma. So I can my behavior can be motivated by tradition, right? When I go home, when my dad was alive, right? when I go home, we do things the way dad says, right? I mean, that was a very patriarchal, authoritarian home, right? I mean, it's dad's way or the highway, and he meant it. There's the door, son. If you don't like it, hit the road, right? He was kicked out of his home by his own dad when he was 13 years old. His, his father opened the door and said, you're on your own, buddy, you know? And my dad had to make his way. You know, he's a self-made man. So it was his way or the highway, right, you know? so very, and, and we had traditions. We had family traditions. So when I go home, I fit into those traditions, right? I did what dad wanted me to do, you know? And I patterned my life in that way. And there are many different traditions. <laughs> and cultures and societies have their own traditions, right? I could shape myself by my emotional uh, condition, right? You know, I could, my behavior could be shaped by, uh, emotional concerns, right? That's a pretty—I bro- mean, pretty pretty broad. There, it can also be shaped by religious motivation, what we call charisma, the power of the spirit. We might say in our tradition, right? So, how does religion? How does our tradition? How does Bible? How does this idea of spirit-led influence our behavior? And those three are in contrast to one particular way of thinking, a very narrow mode of human reflection that was actually had to be invented in the western tradition right the greeks had to invent this and it was invented by uh, the early greeks you know, thales was one of the first scientist philosophers who had to invent this way of thinking and it's very narrow it's a mode of human reflection that thinks about means and ends or cost benefit analysis have you done that you know you know oh boy uh, if, I, if I invest this, what will I get out of it kind of thing, you know? And scientific me- methodology, in some general way, is kind of like that. Dealing with the empirical world, scientific method, that's a very narrow way of human thinking. But when that becomes the dominant way of thinking, right? Or when people think that should be the dominant way of thinking, we should only think that way without um uh, tradition without family without emotional concerns without art and music right or without uh religion then what kind of society would that become so rationalization since Francis Bacon popularized the scientific method in 1650 right you know uh it was in the air at the time of course until today there has this, been this increasing rationalization of our society where we are called to think in a very narrow way. Instrumental reason is called, scientific methodology, scientific mode of thinking. And uh, when that happens, other things have to change. So rationalization. And next, differentiation. Our society is quickly becoming differentiated. If we think about the Middle Ages when the Catholic Church and its beliefs and practices permeated all of society, right? Right? From cradle to grave, you were shaped by the Catholic story, the Catholic social context, right? Well, uh, gradually in Western culture, you learn, I'm sure, you're sure you learned this um, from uh, Dr. McCoy, right? You know, uh, that you learn these processes. Society is getting segmented. You've got the economic sphere. You've got the political sphere. You know, you've got these other spheres. Whoa, where's religion? If society is separated into segments, each with organized by their own expression of scientific instrumental rationality, in short division of labor, what role does religion have? If it's compartmentalized, religion becomes privatized. It's what you do in the privacy of your home, right? You know It doesn't have any public ram- uh, ramifications or public influence, right? you know and uh, My father, John Newhouse, wrote the book called The Naked Public Square, lamenting the loss of the religious voice in American society, American culture. So those two processes are occurring, and there's no guarantee. We don't know where they're going to go, but they are influencing. And many scholars suggest, next slide, that rationalization and differentiation lead to a process called secularization that scholars suggest that each one of us in this room, all of us in American society, are becoming more and more secular. As we learn to think instrumentally, as we learn to think scientifically, that will push out the other forms of human consciousness, and we will only be in a society that's thoroughly secular. So rationalization and differentiation are aspects of secularization. Next, please. Secularization is the process in society by which scientific and bureaucratic instrumental reason increasingly influences action in the social sphere. We do that which is going to be the most efficient, right? And it deals with this worldly kinds of things, right? Max Weber, next. An early sociologist, as he was thinking about this, At the turn of the 20th century, he saw this happening and he was scared. The passages are incredible as I read him over in like January and February. He called a fully secularized society an iron cage of rationality. A fully bureaucratic organization of society by which all decisions are made on purely technological efficiency, rational calculation, and control. And Weber imagined the individual trapped in this iron cage without art or music or religion or beauty. And gradually, under secularization, religion dies because science demystifies the world. Wow. Here's my question to you. Is that really happening? Are we really becoming more and more secular Is religion really dying out? Well, theory is great. I love theory. I love theorizing. But if it doesn't help me understand the real world and able to map out and track what's going on in the empirical world, then that theory has to change. And right now, most sociologists, except for a couple hardcore sociologists, realize that we ain't becoming more secular. In fact, just the opposite. We are becoming more religious. And conservative religious groups all over the world, some of them are called fundamentalists, others more moderate, are pushing back against the secular, saying, no, we are not going to allow our world to be shaped only by the secular, only by instrumental reason. And man, they're pushing back. With vehemence, they're pushing back, right? So, interesting process uh, that's going on here. Well, So we'll talk more about that tomorrow and on Friday. Next slide, please. Pluralism. Another process of pluralism. All pluralism is, all pluralism is, is the existence in a society of multiple groups having distinctive characteristics. Ethnic origin, cultural forms, religion. So as a social fact, that has occurred in America and Europe, right? We are pluralistic. But what many scholars are suggesting and have suggested is that pluralism necessarily relativizes. That there is a social process by which the human consciousness is so shaped that we relativize our own beliefs and practices as no more important or no better than anybody else's, right? Now, I would argue that does happen for some people. I, we've tracked them. I've met people like that, right? But I would argue as well, it's not a necessary process. Christianity. Christianity was born into a highly pluralistic, secular and religious context in the first century. Now, I know that the 21st century is not the first, although some scholars are suggesting some interesting parallels, right, that uh, could occur. So uh, pluralism and then relativism is the belief that the presence of numerous and different social groups undermines social authority, often understood as having a negative effect on the human consciousness in which belief in the uniqueness and absoluteness of one's own beliefs is at least weakened, if not, don't go to the next slide, please, just yet, is challenged in some way, right? So those three processes are occurring in America right now. The question is, is it possible to shape an identity, a self-identity, a religious identity, in the midst of that matrix of social dynamics? The short answer from me today, is you better believe it. It sure is. Empirically, we have many, 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 many data. Much data. A lot of data, right? Nancy, what do I say? How do I do that one, right? Nancy Ross? Yeah. Uh, so uh, a lot of data. That suggests, yeah, people get along pretty well. By the way, you know? do you know where the secular people are? Those who, are really, who really take this with pain and suffering, Right? They're virtually all academics. Academics who have engaged modern, Western, rational, intellectual life have become secularized and they project it out to the world either thinking everybody else out there is secular like them or they ought to be secular like them, right, you know? And I want those scholars to crawl out of their ivory towers and go look at the real world because the world isn't like they think it is or it should be, right, you know? Now, there's nothing wrong. I'm a scholar. I'm an intellectual, right? I have ideas that I think you ought to believe. And I will share those with you. I have no qualms doing that at all, right? And expecting that you do that. But the world out there is not secular, nor is it growing more secular, but more vigorously religious. Now, that doesn't mean modernity and rationality won't, won't push back. It could, Other, you know, some people suggest there's a culture war out there, you know. But again, the culture war is among the elites. Everyday people don't really see much about the problem with the culture war, you know. So everyday people get along quite nicely, and I'm interested in that. Why, how is it possible that they get along quite nicely uh, with religion and pretty wild ideas about religion, too, at the same time they live in the modern world? That's a fascinating question and well worthy of investigation, in empirical research, and maybe you can do some research either when I get back at ENC in, in the fall or with your professor. Next slide. Now, this is what I used to look like. Um, would you say I've come a long way? Yeah. So, in closing, while the social conditions of modernity are challenging, it is possible to form durable, pervasive self identities. But it's going to require work, intentionality, self awareness. So, the question is this, folks: Under what social conditions is a vibrant religious identity possible? That's a great question. Before we answer that question, we're going to have to talk about a theory of religious identity. And I will offer that to you tomorrow as a resource for you, an intellectual academic resource. Because we think we know what religious identity is, and you know, we'll, we'll recognize it when we see it, but we need something more, something more intentional. So I leave you that question. And is this, the identity you have right now, the one you really want to have? Interesting. Could we stand, please? Well, thank you for your patience. I am grateful for that. Uh, these are good days. Good to be back with you just for a few days. I have still have you know, a few months to do. Uh, to work on my book and other material getting ready for class looking forward to fall semester jumping right back into things with you but thank you for your hospitality today and folks uh, many of you my students and good friends thank you for your patience with me and your love for me you've demonstrated that today and that means a lot to me I'm gonna start crying pretty soon here because isn't that what it's about to love each other so deeply that we respect each other and, and care for each other. That's the kind of world that I'm jeweling over and dreaming about. So, Father God, we offer you thanks today. All that matters to us is the kingdom. So, Lord, come quickly. We pray that as we think about these very important things like culture and society, that you would help us. Open the eyes of our hearts and our minds. Uh, May we be fervent intellectuals who investigate all these kinds of things so that we can imagine a world in which we are shaped like the image of Christ. Let it be so. Empower us by your Spirit. Father, guide us by your great will. And may this community live deeply and drink deeply from the well of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.